This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as a February room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite developments, fly rods, and fishing accessories. Tech. Precision. Ingenuity. Legacy. Go to cdfishing.us and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Here's your host, Lauren Carnop, and this is The February Room. Lauren's better half, Justin, here, and I'm on the horn with Dave McCoy of Emerald Water Anglers in Seattle. Dave, welcome to The February Room. Woohoo! Thank you, Justin. Happy to be here, man. You too. It's good to catch up. Um, here we were chewed it up a little before we started recording and finally pieced together how we uh how we knew one another from back in the day right um yeah you had uh, helped us out on a episode of trout unlimited on the rise with smethurst <laughs> yeah everybody should go look that one up <laughs> <laughs> you could probably find it out there on my outdoor tv or something so uh-huh. i might have to research and go uh i found it on there. youtube oh do you yeah it was, uh, oh. I just typed in Frank's name in Olympic Peninsula and it was the first thing that came up. So, well, there you go. That'll give me something to look forward to this afternoon. The quality's terrible, but it, uh, it's sitting there. <laughs> All right. Good enough. Yeah. Uh, well, Dave, you're a fly shop owner, um, a guide, a brand ambassador for several outfits and, uh, have con- contributed a vast portfolio of photographs and articles, uh, to a laundry list of outdoor publications. But there's got to be a few stories yet untold. Could you spare one from the annals of Dave McCoy's personal book of adventure for us? I probably can. I guess what I have to determine is what's going to be um, 
what's not going to put February room on the explicit list for uh, podcast <laughs> and what's going to make people actually still listen. Even after I start with like, well, I was trying to take a poop. Um, yeah. <laughs> you go, we're all ears. Well, I get the quit when I'm guiding, I get the question oftentimes of, uh, how I got into photography and what was, you know, what was the impetus for me running so quickly and so much fervor in that direction uh, while guiding. And it, it actually happened on the Black Canyon uh, one year when I was, you know, a salmon fly hatch. And this isn't a funny story at all. It's more, more insight into how I do what I do and, and the way I do it. But um, I was guiding this client that was, you know, it always come down and it was the second year I think that I'd guided him and, uh, salmon flies were in full swing. He was throwing a big sofa pillow at the wall and as he was casting, he was looking up and, you know, and not paying attention to his fly and, and, uh, he's, he misses a fish and I'm like, lift, lift. I'm like, God, I'm like, Jeff, come on, lift, man. He's like, I'm ah, sorry, you know, geez, I was like, hey, Dave, look at that cave up there. Do you think the Utes used to use that when they would uh, stay in the canyon on their way through here? And I looked at him for a second and I'm like, Jeff, I have no clue. Now lift. I'm like, you just missed another one. Come on. I'm like, oh, Christ. And he kind of chuckles for a second. And then he asked me another question about, you know, look at those... Do you think that this is called Black Canyon because of the coloration of the rocks over there? And how old do you think that is? And if Frank's listening to this, he'll be disgusted because I didn't listen to any of the coaching he gave me when he was training me to, to guide me. But, <laughs> but it, and I'm like, I have no idea. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, here. He goes, well, grab, do you have a beer in the in the cooler? I'm like, yeah, I got a couple of them. He's like, grab them. Let's pull over. We need to have a chat. I'm like, okay. So we uh, we pull over and. And uh, he's like, Dave, do you know why I'm down here? I'm like, to fish, obviously. Salmon fly hatch. Everybody wants to be here right now. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely here to fish. He's like, but do you really know why I'm here? I'm like, no, tell me. He's like, well, every, the fishing is the vehicle for, for me to be here. But I'm really here for the surroundings, for the company, for the sound of the water, for everything that surrounds these these fish that we're trying to catch. I'm like, okay. He's like, may I make a suggestion to you as a guide? And I'm like, sure. He's like, you should know more about the geology and the history of this place. So that when I ask you questions as I'm fishing, I can focus on the fishing while I'm listening to you tell me about, you know, regale me with the stories of, of what the Utes used to do in here and what time they were here and what the different, you know, rock formations mean and so on and so forth. He's like, and you should have a camera. You should be taking pictures of me down here so that, it, you know, at the holidays, you can send me a card with a photo that I haven't seen and say, hey, Jeff, looking forward to seeing you in June again. Uh, because what's going to happen when you do that is I'm going to follow you anywhere you go. I'm going to want to fish with you everywhere that you're trying to trying to go fish. And I can't obviously take pictures of myself while I'm fishing. So in order for me to fully enjoy the experience, 
He's like, be a, be a better guy. I took a hard right turn uh, with that suggestion and did that exact thing. I went, literally went home after that trip, stole my girlfriend's camera, uh, wife now, but took her camera and started shooting pictures in there and started doing exactly that. And lo and behold, yeah, people wanted to fish with me all the time after I did that. So, um, kind of a lesson learned as far as the history of how I got into guiding and where, where I've taken it since. So interesting. So you took it to heart and, uh, turns out he was kind of onto something. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and it makes total sense. And I, you know, the funny thing about it is, you know, that was kind of pre-internet. So there wasn't really any way to share those photos and there wasn't any way to really adorn people with them without actually printing the photos out still and mailing them in an envelope with a stamp. It took extra effort to do it. And yet it, it did lead to what I do now, which is, you know, obviously, like you said, run a, my own photography company and use the images I shoot wherever I am to help promote the companies that I work for and the company that I own and the issues that are, that our industry faces and, and try to promote the, the better side of fly fishing as often as I can. Well, yeah. And your client did you a service too there. Cause you know, in guiding, um, there's so many things that are out of our control. Yep. Um, the fishing, the, the skill of the angler, we can do our best to, uh, to improve on that. But if you can offer, um, you know, knowledge of the area, good food, yep, safe, safe passage, all those, all those little things that can play into a day and, uh, and make their memory for them. That's kind of what gets you, gets you through on, on a day-to-day basis because the, obviously the fishing, the weather conditions, all that stuff is unpredictable and largely out of, out of anybody's hands. Yeah. Somebody was, I can't remember who told me about a bumper sticker that they saw the other day, but it was at a, at another shop somewhere. And it said, I'm, I'm a guide, not God. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. I also like the one that says, uh, if you, if at first you don't succeed, listen to your guide. Yeah. 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 That's a good one. Or the one in New Zealand, if you're having trouble catching New Zealand trout, it's because you're not good enough yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's Kiwi logic. That's <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about Emerald Water Angler, Emerald Water Anglers. Yeah, so Black Canyon, uh, myself and a few other guides uh, were guiding the multi-day trips through the Black Canyon. And after a few years together, we were, you know, T was guiding in Utah and going down south, down to South America. And Ian was doing South America and kind of East Coast. And Troy and I were, I was coming back to the Pacific Northwest and Troy was uh, sticking to Colorado for the most part. And and we all just had these, you know, discussions at night after clients would go to bed and we'd be sitting on the beach and uh, about, you know, clients would be asking, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, how can they know where we are, when, all this stuff? And and uh, <laughs> it sounds funny saying this because it makes complete sense. But I was like, well, what if we started a website with all of us on it and where we fished, when, and had emails that people could reach out to us wherever we were and we'd be able to answer the email from wherever in the world we were at that time. Like, duh, makes complete and utter sense. But again, this was like pre-cell phone almost. And uh, 
definitely like right at the very beginning of, of the internet. And so kind of spawned that idea at night on an overnight trip, came back, talked to my girlfriend about it. And one of my other friends who was a web designer in the early days, and uh, we were getting ready to move to Seattle anyway. And so my wife came up with the name, told our friend that was the web designer. And one day she had me come over and she built the first website for Emerald Water Anglers. And Seattle being the Emerald City, that was kind of the impetus for the name. And uh, so that, that was literally kind of where it started. And then when we moved here, I was uh, helping run the fly fishing shop at... Uh, at REI when they had one for about a year and a half, two years and showing people the website on the floor computer as often as I could. And I'd go home at night and, and be super pumped because there was 11 visitors to the website that day. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, uh, got REI to give me th- give me three 13 and a half hour working days a week. So I had four days a week to guide and explore. The original intention was to work for a guide service here in, in Seattle, but there weren't any. Everybody was just an individual guide and shops would refer clients to you if they liked you. We were literally the first guide service in Seattle as far as having gear to provide people from waders and boots and rods and reels to providing hotel pickup and drop off to all the other things that basically were status quo for Rocky Mountain guide services to provide as far as a service. We were the first one in Seattle to do it and grew it grew rather quickly, even considering the lack of um, internet or the lack of use of the internet at the time. Uh, so it was, it's been fun. It's been a crazy ride, been ups and downs and, uh, still primarily the, the only one that really is a fly shop guide service in this, in this area still. I mean, there's other shops obviously, and they have some guides and stuff, but we really are the one that's the most organized fly shop guide service combo in this region. So well, that's awesome, man. Good on you. Yeah, it's um, crazy. And you guys guide um, throughout the Seattle area and up into the peninsula. Yeah, peninsula is a uh, that season is has usually just been kind of a January through March for us, and then we started. We just actually just hired a new guide that lives out there that is going to allow us to guide the peninsula through him all year now because we get a ton of information or a ton of people that ask about it during the summer, but it's just too long of a haul for us to do for day trips because we, we basically stay within two hours of Seattle and that's just, that's just too far to go. So having him out there is going to provide us the opportunity to guide the peninsula all year now, which is pretty exciting. Uh, Oh, nice. So you have a peninsula based guide now. Yep. Speaking of steelhead. So Steelhead runs are kind of at uh, a critical mass here up and down uh, the Pacific Northwest. What's the situation up in your neck? Well, ironically, we just heard from DFW last night um, about rule changes for the Olympic Peninsula for this coming winter. Um, (laughs) I can read you a little bit of it. Yeah, let's hear the greatest hits. Yeah, so state announces changes to coastal steelhead recreational fishing season to meet conservation objectives while preserving angling opportunities. 
The restrictions will begin December 14th and are expected to last through April 30th and affect all sport fishing and coastal tributaries. Among the changes, fishing from, from a floating device prohibited. Wow. There you go. There's your big one. Yep. <laughs> yep. There you go. All right. There you go. That's the one okay. that uh, probably uh, we can probably just end right there because that's the one that's going to be the game changer. Good for the swingers. Yeah, it's. Uh, I know there's a lot of high fives going around about that. Um, it's going to put just a lot of people on the bank. So true. Everybody. I mean, I've got a lot of mixed feelings about the Olympic Peninsula, um, and a, there's you know different people have different views on on what takes place out there, and what the reasons are for the decline in fisheries. They're saying in here that the numbers have been declining for the last four years uh, and that they're expected to not reach escapement goals. My personal feeling is they should probably just close the whole damn thing, period. Um, Or risk getting those fish ESA listed, at which point if that happens, then the feds will end up having to close it. So people need to start kind of watching their P's and Q's on how they fish. Um, uh, the state for whatever reason has put themselves in a corner with regards to how they can manage or not manage guiding in our state it's kind of a free-for-all and it's pretty sad to see what's what's taking place out there as far as the number of guides from jesus uh, uh let's see california oregon washington I no Montanans want, at all. No, no Montanans. No, none, <laughs> zero. Uh, Colorado, Ohio, Michigan. Um, Jeez. Where else have I seen a couple of guides from? So, I mean, they're they're they come from everywhere, and our industry has done this fabulous job of propping this place up as this unbelievable fishery. And at one point, it really actually was, but with the state doing nothing to really manage the amount of traffic on it uh we've we've kind of kicked it in the nuts a little bit even a lot a bit of a hornet's nest yeah i mean we we've done it a considerable disservice in shitty management so um we're gonna this is this is one step in the direction of what i believe will be probably closures coming in the next few years if things don't change so We'll see. Yeah. Ugh, I hope that doesn't happen. Um, I mean, you know, no matter which fishery you, you pick, the, the clear water, um, you know, your coastal streams, the Oregon coastal streams, there's issues up and down throughout the range. And um, they're so, uh, yeah, they're so daunting. And uh, and it's, it's such a massive, massive problem. But, uh, you know, as anglers, we all have to be aware that uh, – you know, we're, we're fishing for, a for a dying breed here. So yep. we have to approach it, approach it very tread, very lightly. I just, it just kind of amazes me that, you know, with, with other States and other regulations on other rivers that it has been so difficult for Washington to follow suit. It's not like we need to reinvent a wheel with regards to managing angling pressure permits, uh, not fishing from floating devices. That's nothing new for crying out loud. The Deschutes doesn't let you do that. You know, right. Um, there's, there's so many things that we could have done better. 
and that already existed as far as uh, regulations in other parts of the country and the world on trophy waters, if you will. I hate the word right. trophy, but you get the point. And we just we just never did it. We had to. It had to become a reactionary move as opposed to a preservation move, and that just really it, it just really sucks, man. I'm I'm bummed about it. Yeah, that's a shame, man. I, you know, I've never fished the Olympic Peninsula and um, and had plans to go up there this spring, but those are obviously in flux for a number of reasons. Um, so yeah, may may never get a chance to see it, but uh, hopefully, well, I hope you know, do. You know, silver lining. I mean, I don't know. Maybe things will. Maybe we'll. Maybe we'll get our uh, poop in a group and get it all figured out, and Mother Nature will throw us a bone. And um, here, ten years from now, we'll be. Uh, We'll be uh, swinging flies with no one else around. How would that be? <laughs> yeah, I'd, that sounds terrific. It doesn't sound very likely, but it sounds <laughs> riding unicorns into That's the river. Right. That's right. It's pretty fascinating to think about all of that. Um, I mean, my God, the number of people that guide in this state now because the regulations are just so easy to guide here—it's astounding. Uh, well, I didn't realize that it was um, as wide open as it was. Yeah, it's. I mean, I remember when I when when I started guiding here, um, even over on like the Yakima for trout. It's like people fly into Washington on a clear blue day and they see the amount of water that we have at our fingertips here, and if they fly fish and don't have a lot of awareness of the difference in what we are versus Montana, let's say, they believe they just flew into Shangri-La and that we're Montana on steroids. We've got more water at our disposal than you could even fathom, right? Um, But this is anadromous fish country, not resonant trout country. So we don't have those Montana-esque, Rocky Mountain-esque trout rivers. We just just don't have them. Uh, The Yakima is the closest thing that we get and it's just okay if you compared it to 20 or 30 other rivers in the, you know, in the Rocky Mountains from north to south. So um, when I started here, there was, a, you know, there was a couple other guide services on the Yakima and a few individual guides. There really wasn't that many people guiding. There are now... Jesus, one, two, three, four, five, six, like six fairly sizable guide services that I can just think of off the top of my head and a litany of just individual guides out there. Um, right. I mean, it's pro- the number of people guiding on that river has in 20 years has probably quintupled at least. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, I mean, it's 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 happening everywhere. Yeah, I know. It sounds like you guys have um, somewhat of a magnified issue based on uh, the lax regulations that are in place around guiding and one um, river to guide. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. One that, river to guide that doesn't help. all year for trout. Uh, that doesn't help. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I don't know when the last time you came over here and fished uh, during like the salmon fly hatch or something. Um, but we're kind of at the saturation point around here too, in my opinion, as far as guiding goes. That's kind of what I've been hearing. 
Yeah, that's what I've that's what I've heard. I haven't been over there for salmon fly in a long time, probably 15, 16 years, but I was over there um late September, early October and uh or mid October, something like that, and was pretty amazed at how busy it was even then. Like, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, cuz there used to be nobody early on the waters once once like hunting season started. Yep. Um, yeah. And that's just, that's not the case anymore. Crazy stuff. So um, you're from Colorado originally, right, Dave? No, I actually grew up in Eugene, Oregon. Oh, you did? Yep. Okay. Fellow Oregon boy. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so then did you, I imagine you probably grew up steelhead fishing in Oregon yep. and then then located to uh, the Rockies and then, and then moved back out to steelhead country. Yep. I, uh, ski race coaching took me to Colorado and, uh, steelhead fishing brought me back to the Pacific Northwest. Well, I'll be danged. We, uh, have led somewhat parallel lives. Yeah. I, I was a ski coach here in Missoula for a while. Oh, were you really? Yeah. Well, that's hilarious. We probably ran into each other on the slopes. We probably have, man. I, you know, I grew up racing at Mount Bachelor. Um, yeah, was, was, yep. Nils, was Nils, was Nils was my coach. <laughs> That's Nils awesome. was my coach. Yep. Nils is now the and, soccer coach at Bend High. My sister's the, uh, cross country coach there. So yeah, he's still around. Oh yeah. And Fred Schick and Fred Schick, man, a legend, the Copenhagen yes. King. Oh my God. I love Fred. Yep. Oh, me too, man. Who doesn't? That guy's great. Yeah. I worked for the MBSEF for a little bit and then, uh, Coached up at Mount Hood for a while and then ended up down in Colorado. I'll be danged. Well, I'm sure we could sit here and... and That's a uh, whole other podcast. Go a whole other podcast and go mutual friend for mutual friend all yeah, night. Right. <laughs> that's fantastic, man. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so so Steelhead, why? what is it about Steelhead that draws you to fishing for them? Because uh, yeah. they're a grind. I mean, you know, it's not a it's not a numbers game. I mean, I'm sure, like you, I have gone a season without hooking a winter fish. Um, yet I still yearn for the next time I can get out and do it. So, what is it about steelhead fishing um, that attracts you? Man, I think you, I think you said it right there. It's not a numbers game. Um, somewhere in in the in the path of starting to fly fish when I was two and a half or three to now. Um, and the people that influenced me, whether it was directly or indirectly, I just came to this place where I, I don't necessarily care about catching the fish, but I will thoroughly enjoy that result if the way I've done it suits exactly how I want to do it if that makes sense. So yep, it makes sense to me. Spay casting is something that I've been in love with since moving up here. I bought my first spay rod from Scott fly rods in 96, I believe. And, uh, it, there's just something about spay casting and swinging flies that makes that journey between fish, um, an unknown. And I, I really do enjoy the adventure that our sport brings to the table and by swinging and not knowing if you're going to get a fish on in that way or not is something that keeps you alive and, and on point. Um, 
and there really is nothing like those little tick those little fly tickles you get when the fish is entertaining the idea of slamming it and you can feel all of that uh through the swing um and i think that as a fly angler who's always trying to better better his game when you address the water on the, on a swung fly you are reading it for a different presentation than what most fly anglers are taught how most fly anglers are taught to read water and so therefore i think you become more in tune with it you become a better fly angler uh through through that process and and you just understand water in a whole new way and i absolutely love that it's it's what gets me up in the morning Right. And you also pick up an arsenal of casts that you can apply to any fishing situation. Without question. I learned to, to spay cast from Charles St. Pierre um, <laughs> back in the late 90s. And uh, and at first I didn't quite get it. You know, I, I thought because he had me on a learning tool. It was like a 14 foot eight and we were swinging for, you know, six, seven pound a run fish on the Deschutes. And, uh, and I struggled with it at first too, because I'm really predominantly right-handed and, um, I just couldn't quite coordinate everything very well. So it was somewhat frustrating and, um, it didn't have anything to do with the fact that the head was like 55 feet long or anything like that. Yeah. Right. Throwing one of those mid spays or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Well, now, now looking, it's so funny you say that because now you can, you can line somebody up with a Skagit head and, and have them, you know, covering water in a couple of hours. But oh my yeah, God. the learning curve back then was tough. And it oh. was a, it was a, yeah, boy, it was a frustrating, uh, it was a frustrating trip for me. So I kind of went away from it and I learned those casts with a single handed rod. There you go. And then, and then once I, you know, got back to it and I go fish with John, John Hazlett and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, follow him through runs and, and watch him. And then, you know, it all kind of came together. And once it kind of, and I'm not a great spay caster by any means, but, but once you can get to a point where you feel like you're, you're covering water and most of your cast, you're landing where you want them and everything, then it's, uh, then it's just, a, it's just a blast. Yep. Yeah. It's funny watching the pendulum swing a little bit. Um, you know, those of us that are that swing and swing exclusively, you know, we've gone through this whole evolution of 60 plus foot heads all the way down to 17 foot heads. And now we've got these, this resurgence of longer rods with longer, longer bellied lines. And like we, we sell bridge fly lines from Tim Arsenault who lives in BC and I can't keep them in stock. Huh? There's all, there's just this flood of people coming back to wanting to throw, you know, 40 to 55 foot heads again. And I, I think it's awesome. Um, well, that's good. And that's good from a retailer standpoint, because now you got a whole new surge you can focus on. That, and the, you know, I, if you're going to truly learn a skill, like let's learn it. I understand right. making it easier and making it easier, but when you make it so easy that, you literally are not helping the person that's learning become a better angler because you've made it too easy. And then they, they get in a situation where they either want to try something longer and they come to it with this big head and this ego about how great a spay caster they are. And then they just get fully humbled. I, I'm okay with that too, but I'd rather just have people learn 
how to spay cast well in the very beginning. Right. At least like start on, on some Scandi heads or something like that, that gives you a little bit of length and makes you actually place your, your anchors and, and stuff a little bit more, uh, consciously as opposed to just being able to lift your rod, sweep it, swing it around and throw and have it magically just go 80 feet. Duck and throw. Yeah. That's a, again, that's another podcast. We'll have to delve into that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so tell me a little about, uh, about the global travel program you guys do. Yeah. The, uh, I, I like traveling. I, I love seeing the world. So, um, you know, when we started the, <laughs> funny enough, it goes back to when we, when I started Emerald Water Anglers, um, and ha- we had, you know, started to have some of our clients reach out to us about, you know, things they'd be like, so, I remember on the river, you said that you'd been to the Bahamas, uh, where, and, uh, who'd you fish with and how do I get a hold of them? And so I was like, you know, I was giving, um, I was pointing out to people who to fish with like Philip Raleigh and North Andros and, and, you know, stuff like that. And I think it was Phil one day said to me, he's like, you know, if we just kind of make this more of a professional relationship, I'm happy to pay a commission for all the referrals you keep sending me. And light bulb went off in my head and I was like, huh, interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that just, you know, that became a little bit of a supplemental income, um, to the guiding and, and, uh, I never really wanted to open a fly shop. I was fairly adamant about not doing that when I moved here, but it just all, led that direction because you start seeing as a guide all the people that are passing through your doors or passing you know through you and because you don't sell anything they end up at another shop buying stuff and I kept track of it one year um, and I figured I'd probably left 200 250 thousand dollars worth of sales on the table in a year from all the lessons and everything I'd taught and so uh, yeah, so the travel, I just, the photography really drove that too. I really wanted to start pro- providing more images to stories and articles I was writing and, and I wanted to see new places. I just, I, I love, people always ask, what's your favorite place that you've ever fished? And I'm, my canned answer is the, the place I've never been. Right. So 47 countries in the last probably eight years, nine years. And wow. Yeah, I I still have not made much of a dent in my list. Dang, you got a you got a broad list, man. Yeah. I've got a bad disease is what it turns out to be. You do, you have a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and more cowbells not going to solve it. <laughs> well, cool. Well, I know you get over here occasionally to fish with uh, the likes of Vandegrift or uh, Greg Thomas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know. Um, Next time I'm going to have to get in touch with you there. Yeah. I'm going to have to, maybe I can come run your guys' shuttle for you or something. There you go. Or just <laughs> fish with us for crying out loud. That'd be great, man. Yeah. Make you some crepes and, uh, oh, yeah, we could. That sounds fabulous. Well, awesome, man. Um, do you got another yarn for us before we cut you loose? Yeah. I've got, I was, I was thinking about one. I had this, I did this overnight trip with some guys and, uh, they were they were on it to do more drinking than fishing 
Were they Montanans? <laughs> no, they were Washingtonians. They were wild Westerners. <laughs> and, <laughs> but they, I mean, they, they stirred the, they stirred the proverbial soup with, you know, beer before wine, before brown water, before clear water, before, I mean, they just put it all in the same bucket. Ouch. Uh, so yeah, it, exactly. It was a huge ouch. So we were, and we were just telling stories and laughing and, and just, I mean, just cracking up. We were sit, we were sitting in front of the campsite in the boat. We hadn't even gotten out of the boat. <laughs> it's, it was, I just all of a sudden noticed, I'm like, oh my God, it's, it's almost dark. Like I haven't unloaded the boat. I still have to make dinner. Uh, I need to set up camp. And when I stepped out of the boat, I hooked my, my shoelace on the oar lock and went like face down in the gravel. And that just, they just started laughing so hard. It wasn't even funny. And so I, I was a little embarrassed, a little pissed at myself, uh, for just totally losing it. So I took their Paco pads. I unrolled them and just threw them on the gravel and said, all right, camp's made. <laughs> and then, uh, went, went over set a table up, cooked, and I'm positive of this, cooked maybe my greatest filet mignon on a, on a camp stove ever. Ooh. It tasted so good. It might not, it might have had something to do with the incredible amount of, of libation that my body was still hosting that I thought it was that great, but I thought it was great. And know your uh, audience too. I mean, you were- yeah, exactly. And they thought it was great. And so, <laughs> so we opened one more bottle of wine and, and that was kind of the last thing I remember. Um, <laughs> so then I, in the middle of the night, I wake up and I've got to go to the bathroom really bad. And, uh, I'm a little disoriented. I'm sleeping on half on my Paco pad, half on the rocks and uh still in my waders and i've got to go bat and i hadn't set up the the porta potty either and so or the groover and uh i'm like and this is not going to give me the time to do it so i kind of in a haze running around trying not to fall in the river and i there's a log sitting on the bank so i go over and i Pull my, get my waders down and I sit myself on this log and hang my butt off the backside and just let it go. And it, you know how you get that flush of like, almost like somebody threw a, a bucket of cold water on you when you let one of those go in the morning. And no, no, nothing you know, about it. Okay. Well, <laughs> I could go into more detail, but I won't. Um, so I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm relaxing in a way I hadn't relaxed obviously in a few hours because of harboring that fugitive and uh and i'm i'm sitting there and uh i'm like okay now i've got a problem now i've forgot to grab tp and i don't even know where it is and i'm sitting over here the boat's over there what the hell am i gonna do and so i i think about it for a second and i go to stand up and my shoulder strap from my waders somehow had fallen on the back side of the log and hooked on a broken off branch. And so I stood up with enough momentum that I kind of had a little bit of uh, recoil in the flexible strap and it pulled me back down onto the log and I rolled off the log backwards. Uh-oh. 
which at that point my belt loop had hooked or my belt had hooked on a branch on the front of the log and I was stuck. I couldn't get up. So I'm sitting there on this log, feet over the front of it, on my shoulders, trying not to land in my in my uh, repository <laughs> and screaming at the top of my lungs to try to get Brad and Carl to freaking wake up and come help me. And it just wasn't going to happen. So I, I'm like literally sitting there with my head and my shoulders, arms straight up in the air, knowing right where I can feel the warmth of it kind of up against the small of my back. And I'm like, oh my God. So I'm like trying to twist out of it, try to get my, I have my wading boots on, so I can't take my waders off. And finally I just exhaust myself and I just have to fall flat into it. (laughs) (laughs) There was was just no other choice. And do you know how hard it is to wipe the middle of your back off? (laughs) So I, tried it didn't work so i just pulled my waders back up went and laid back down on my paco pad and woke up in the morning and uh <laughs> jet boat goes rolling by and slows down in front of us and all i can hear is the is the guide on the boat going what the happened there <laughs> and then the rest of the guys on the boat just laughing their asses off at us <laughs> It looked a little bit like a like a murder scene, I think, with the way we were spread out on the uh, on the beach and stuff. So, <laughs> not my finer moment. They exist, and I've got this thing about poop. I think it's funny. So most of my stories involve poop. And uh, oh, I give up. Oh, that was something else. <laughs> I wish we'd have done this in the video format so I could have showed you what that really looked like. Right. Yeah. Maybe like, maybe a cartoon or something. <laughs> yeah. If I had any degree of, of ability to draw, I would totally draw that. <laughs> An animation sure. really would tell the story. Well, Dave, the real McCoy, man, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you. Absolutely, man. Thank you for the invite. It was a pleasure. Uh, great talking to you again. And, uh, Yeah, thank you. This was fun. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns. And if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.